Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with Vanessa Cho, head of UX and research for the software and services group at GoPro. Vanessa talks about GoPro's approach to design, the challenges of designing simultaneously for software and hardware, and her fascination with ATM machines. Enjoy the show. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I'd love to start off with you just talking a little bit about what you do at GoPro and how you arrived there. Yeah. Uh, so I lead the design and research team for GoPro software and services, which means that our team is responsible for all digital experiences that are actually not on the GoPro camera. We cover GoPro web, GoPro mobile app, GoPro desktop app, really any 10 foot experience where you see a GoPro. So while, and while we're a fairly new team, we're a well-rounded team. We have a strong mix of all UX disciplines and prototyping and research functions. And I, I often thank myself. I was just like, wow, I feel really grateful because, that we have a strong team because we need a strong team. We need a well-rounded team because our charter for GoPro software and services is really aggressive. Our mission is to make it easier for our users to offload, manage, edit, and share those experiences. And when I say that, I always think of, whenever, whenever I say that, I realize, oh, that sounds really simple. You know, offload, manage, edit, and share. <laughs> but actually, it's super challenging. I mean, when you think about it, I always say this, the whole point of a GoPro camera is I, I turn it on and then I forget about it. I let it run for four hours and all it does is it over captures. It captures everything. And really that experience seems great for the camera, but then what do you do afterwards? Really, it's just like, now it's all on the camera. How do you find that amazing 15 second clip that you want to take and share? A good experience is, you know, when I go skiing, I just turn on that camera for four hours. And really for most of those hours, it's okay, but it's not great. But I know I want to find that 15 second clip, that teeny weeny clip where I completely wiped out and I want to share that. It's like, how do I go through that? How do I scrub that? Easily find that, clip it, and then share it so I can relive that moment over and over again. So that that process, that that experience, which usually is on a to-do list for anybody, you know, that task, that is the goal for our team. How do we make that more easier? And then also, like, arguably, how do we even try to make that delightful? So that's our job. You know, it's super challenging and our brains definitely hurt at the end of the day. <laughs> they do. I was like, sometimes I was like, I don't know. But, and, you know, we have an amazing team and we have a lot of fun, you know, doing that. So that's, that's what we do at GoPro. That's pretty cool. So let's talk a little bit about what the design process is like at GoPro. I'm curious to know both within your team and then working across um, with the hardware side. Yeah. I, I mean, I think our, on one level, our design process is very similar to what you found in many Silicon Valley software companies. We work closely with product managers. We support the product definition phase by researching, concepting, prototyping, and testing with our customers. And once we validate the concept as a value, we move into detailed design and then towards launch. I think, though, what makes us potentially different than most, you always think that you're different, but maybe you're not, <laughs> is how we're uniquely structured, you know, to support the process. Typically, product design teams are built in one of two ways. Either they have a team that's comprised of specialists who are delivering amazing and impeccable quality, mm -hmm. but sometimes lack the speed or the growth, or other, other ways that you can set up a team is a team made up of generous who deliver speed, 
but sometimes lack consistent high quality across all UX functions or can look across the entire ecosystem. So for example, I have worked you know, with a handful, or really a small handful of UX generalists who really can write well. You know, they can they say they're generalists and they are, but it's just like when you think about it, it's nearly impossible, I think it is, to do research, information architecture, content strategy, interaction, visual design, copywriting. I mean, the list goes on, right? Mm-hmm. It's like all exceptionally well. So one thing that we tried at GoPro and we're trying now is this like we're building a hybrid model that allows us to harness the specialized skills while delivering speed and scale. So what we have is embedded UX generalists for each of the product teams who really can champion the customer experience and, you know, help define the product and the value of it. And simultaneously, we have a group of shared services, which is filled with specialists, researchers, visual designers, content strategists, and then also me as a manager. I'm in that as well, that work to help support the generalists, the UX generalists that are sitting embedded in the team. And they're ensuring that the team, you know, not only is working well together, but it's delivering consistent on-brand quality work. And so while this model itself is requires a lot of collaboration (laughs) and at times i think my team is like this is hard you know it's like it requires a lot of collaboration and communication between the individuals i feel like it's a good model for us it also helps me significantly that i have a very tenured and mature and collaborative team as well you know Mm -hmm. that always helps (laughs) and not only on the software side but then also on the hardware side as well we have excellent partnership there That's awesome. That's awesome. So I want to go back to my initial question with you and just kind of um, take a take a look at how did you arrive at GoPro? I'm curious to hear about it. And and specifically, I'd like to hear not just like where you were before, but um, what your what your background is education wise. Yeah, I think uh, it was probably a long journey getting to GoPro, but I feel like it's a common one. I've heard the story before as a as an immigrant, which I am. I was born in, randomly, I was born in Vienna, Austria, to, you know, to Korean parents. So I consider myself Asian European. It's funny. That's never a box that I can check. I was like, okay, where's the Asian European box? Um, And it is somewhat odd, definitely. But my dad, he actually was working at the United Nations. So I was born and raised until I was 18. You know, I lived in Europe and I consider Europe my home. But, you know, when it came time to apply to university, my parents strongly believed I should go to the States and not only anywhere in the States, they wanted me to go to an Ivy League school. <laughs> and, you know, that, that was the thing that they said. They felt that if I went to an Ivy League school, it was the best way for me to attain that elusive, amazing American dream. You know, it's just like it very much is that immigrant story. But of course, you know, me as an 18 year old, I was like, no, I have a completely different idea. Of this. <laughs> I wanted to stay in Austria. I wanted to become an artist and wear black and drink coffee you know. <laughs> but in the end you know it's just like I, I wanted to please my parents and they're amazing people so I just started researching and I found that Brown University which is an Ivy League school I found this all through the encyclopedia that means how old I was is like Ivy League school also had a sister program and the sister program was RISD um, and you know the Rhode Island School of Design so mm-hmm. I figured it all out I was very fortunate to get in and you know I, I attended Brown and I took all my design classes at Rhode Island School of Design. I feel I feel like we got the best of both worlds and we were really lucky. And in the four years that I was there, I really fell in love not only with design, you know, but also with the States. That was something that was really surprising to me. I always thought I would go back to Europe. 
And I was like, oh, I really want to give it a go to work here in the States after I graduate. But it turns out when you graduate with an art degree, it's actually pretty hard to get a work visa. <laughs> who, who would have known? Somebody should have told me that. Uh, so that was really hard. You know, I scrambled for many, many years, you know, constantly picking companies or targeting companies where I knew that they had a large enough HR department, a large enough legal department, or a large enough appreciation for design that they would actually sponsor a work visa that was focused and concentrated in art. Which, by the way, is really, there are not that many. So I ended up in New York City after, I mean, I went to graduate school, and then I ended up in New York City, and I started working for really large media companies where they did. They were of scale, they were substantial, and they were really eager at that time, because it was the internet boom, to find designers that could turn on their computer and would know Photoshop or Illustrator or pretty much kind of learn skills on the job, which mm -hmm. is really what my training was. I never went to school for any of this. You know, I just learned how to, at that time, how to code, you know, it's just like how to go and talk to people and test with people and just figure out how to build products or software on the job. And that, that was a lot of my training. Just it got a lot of my grittiness, you know, I learned there in New York. And while I loved New York, I never really could afford New York. So after, <laughs> after many years there, my, my, my soon-to-be husband, my boyfriend and I were just like, we love it, but we need to get out of here. So we took all the money that we had and we, we said, we're just going to drive cross, cross country. And my husband was like, I'm going to show you the states. And for six months, we just camped across country and we ended up in San Francisco. And we were like, okay, we're going to start it. We're going to give it a go here. And as we were moving into our apartment, literally on the first day, uh, we're moving boxes. And I'll never forget this day. My landlady asked me, hey, do you have a job? And this was very awkward for me. <laughs> in, in New York, no landlord or landlady talks to you. I don't know how. It's, you send your check to some random address and you never even see these people. And I remember this woman talking to me and she said, do you have a job? And I was like, no, but don't worry. You know, I'll find a way to pay the rent. We'll figure it out. And um, she's like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a web designer. I don't even know if you know what that is, you know. And she's like, oh, she's like, do you have a portfolio? And I was like, yeah. And so I remember yelling my URL through the window, sweating while putting, you know, moving the boxes. And then the next day, I remember we had just connected our phone, the, you know, the phone rings and Walmart calls. And it was so weird. It was our first phone call we had ever gotten in San Francisco. And, um, and they said, hi, how are you doing? I was like, hi. <laughs> they said, hi, just so you know, you came recommended, you know, by your landlady. And <laughs> your landlady, I don't know if you know this, used to be the head of, you know, recruiting for the design agency that did a lot of work for Walmart. And I said, oh, well, I had no idea. I thought she was just my landlady. <laughs> and um, they're like, no, and we saw your portfolio and we really would like you to come in. And I, I was standing there in a very empty room saying, I, I think you have the wrong person. And they're like, no, we want you to come in. We saw your work. And I said, no, I've never been in a Walmart. You know, I grew up in Europe. I went to school on the East Coast. I didn't have a car, so I couldn't drive anywhere. And then I lived in New York City. I've actually never been to a Walmart. I think it's a store, right? And they're like, yes, it's a store. Um, but I, I was watching my husband and he's like, we have no money. Just go and talk to them. <laughs> I remember being like, all right, I'm just going to talk to them and just get in the practice of interviewing. And I went in maybe a week later and I was just floored. I was so impressed with the people I got to meet, you know, 
the scale that they were designing for. And I thought, you know, I'll just give it a go. Like a year, I've never done e-commerce before. I thought that, you know, just like this is something that I could definitely learn from. I, I love learning opportunities. And I ended up staying there for nine years. And they were incredible years. I got to work with these incredible group of designers. I was pretty much one of the first UX designers. And by the time I left nine years, I think we were a team of 60, 70 people, you know, it's and they all these designers taught me the importance of culture, you know, designing for scale and impact and just learning how to be a manager or in this idea of servant leadership. And that was an incredible ride. But at the at the end of it, I really wasn't designing anymore. I was I was just doing a lot of budgeting, you know, and influencing <laughs> presentations and I just missed it. And I felt that, you know, here was an opportunity. In the meantime, I had gotten married that I could actually pick my next job. I really didn't have to worry about who could sponsor me. Obviously, Walmart was able to sponsor my work visa, but I actually had my green card and I said, you know, I'm going to go and find my job. For the first time, I'm going to go and find the job that I want. And I looked around, I talked to a lot of people. And in the end, actually, it was funny. I found GoPro and GoPro found me. It was completely different. They wanted something. They were really small. I would have been, again, the first UX designer to build a team, but it was an incredible brand. Really, the customer loyalty, again, is huge. Mm -hmm. And in general, it's just like they have a very, they or me, actually, we have a really challenging problem that we actually need to solve. And that was something that was really exciting for me. And I'm very fortunate that, you know, again, I work with this very smart team that I can just learn from every single day. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are some of the unique challenges for designing for hardware and software all at once? Yeah, (laughs) it's so funny. I was like, what? I don't know if there's anything unique. There's not a unique challenge at all is really challenging. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. It's like, I, I feel that everything about, you know, trying to work with hardware and software together is the challenge itself. Uh, somebody, we ha- I was having a conversation with somebody about it and I was trying to use a metaphor to describe it and I couldn't really, but I was like, you know, hardware and software is very much like apples and oranges. And your job as a designer is to invent a peeler that works for both. You're just like, wait a second, that that's impossible. It's really two very different animals. And I think the reason is, you know, it's slight, but I think the reason is, is because fundamentally, Hardware and software, they're motivated with for different outcomes. You know, it's just like it really is. Specifically, I think hardware has to be solution driven. The only, you know, they only have one chance to make that one product perfect. They can't release a product and then quickly update it and be like, sorry, that wasn't really good. And here, let's send another update to the, you know, the app store. Once it's out there, it really is out there. It's final. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, software is totally different. In the sense where it's not about a final product at a specific point in time. Mm-hmm. It's much more about the process, you know, about evolving the product itself. It's about hypothesizing, concepting, learning, iterating, and changing. And I definitely think that a hardware designer does that too. They must. They absolutely have to. But they still have to design for a finished product, you know, a final, final product. And the software designer, I feel, usually often has the attitude that, ah, you know, it's just like the attitude is the product is never finished. You can always learn and iterate and go through betas and, you know, it's alphas and betas. And then, you know, it's just like a public beta. And it's funny, that philosophy, those two different philosophies, I think drive a lot of the difference. You know, it's just like 
how decisions are made, risk mm-hmm. tolerance, even resource distribution. It's just like, okay, we, you know, hardware designers, like this thing needs to ship before Thanksgiving or Black Friday. You know, we can't change when Christmas is. Everybody's all hands on deck, you know, it's like, where software is like, oh, we're just evolving this, you know, this product itself is maturing. And I, I think that's the main thing that I've learned, you know, and while I think the Delta sounds dramatic, and I'm obviously very dramatic, but it, it sounds dramatic, I think all you really need is, you know, to find great hardware peers or software peers, regardless of where you are, that share that understanding of design thinking about how you actually create solutions or concepts, you know, and test those particular things out. Once you have that shared thinking, you know, you can make that ecosystem, you know, really sing. And we we do have that. I mean, GoPro is considered more of a hardware company. And we're like the software, you know, team that's coming, that's the new kids on the block. But I'm very lucky that on the hardware side, we, there is great appreciation, you know, it's just like, and they're great hosts as well, that we can together figure out this ecosystem challenge together. That's super. That's super. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. I mean, the product life cycles must be just the timing must be yeah. so, so wacky. I mean, <laughs> it is really wacky. <laughs> it's really wacky because I would say that on the software side, we're just really thinking for the next three to six months, right? If you think any far further beyond, you know, 12 months, you, you're, you're, you're introducing a lot of potential waste and churn on the software side. You don't know how the industry is changing, how the software is changing. And so that piece of it, you have to be somewhat short-sighted. Mm-hmm. You can have a roadmap, but exactly what the de- detailed design will look like, you don't know, you know, and you have to leave yourself up to this ambiguity. On the hardware side, though, it's just like they're working, you know, two years, two to three years in advance, which is just mind boggling to me. And it's actually a really big challenge because, you know, the hardware designers are just like, hey, we're we're thinking about this product in two years. Isn't it incredible? You know, we need the software to actually make sure that this whole ecosystem sings, right? And the software ideas are great, but the software designer is just like, dude, I'm just trying to figure out what's going to happen in the next three months. I can't even go there. So that context sh- shifting that happens every single day is hard. Mm. I would say that that is really, really hard. You know, it's what I love about the job. When I was actually at Walmart, we were building Walmart software, but, you know, we were making sure that it synced with a store that was going to be built in the next three years. I mean, this is like, you think about it, we're like, okay, we're building some software that will go into a store that hasn't really been built yet. And so you have to have some suspension of disbelief and being like, I'm just going to trust that all of these roadmaps are going to fit, you know, and that we're all moving in that direction. But constant communication and constant alignment that is absolutely necessary. If you're just a pure hardware company or a pure software company, you don't have this. And sometimes it's considered noise, you know, it's just like, but sometimes it, it is considered the challenge itself. And this is the part that makes the brain hurt, which for whatever <laughs> reason, we really, really do love. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you spoke about it earlier. It's such a, um, I mean, everyone talks about culture, but in given the challenges that you're facing across teams, you have to have that strong trust and culture and make sure everybody feels like they're on the same page and aligned in, in what they're doing. Yeah. Um, very cool. So, um, you know, this could be inside or outside of GoPro, but I'm curious to know if there are like people or projects that are grabbing your attention and they, they could be in the design community or somewhere else. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, um, well, obviously we have some amazing projects that I would, 
you know, that we're doing internally and I can't share those, you know, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think I've been watching a lot about what's going on in hardware space, but then also with these drones, I find that very fascinating, you know, a different perspective. I often feel that GoPro isn't a camera company, it's a, it's a mounts company in the sense where the perspective that we're introducing or the angle that we're introducing to capture uh, your story or your experience. So I've been, I've been watching and I'm reading a lot about drones, but I think the thing that it's odd, the thing that really this past weekend that I spent a lot of time doing is not anything sexy like a drone or consumption experience. I, I think I'm a mom, I know I'm a mom of two kids and, you know, their existence has been just this amazing design renaissance for me. All of a sudden, I'm exposed to these crazy new products that I had no idea existed, you know, ranging from diapers or car seats to Legos or Minecraft. There is a lot out there. And, you know, I've become all of a sudden back an addictive to coloring books. It's been, <laughs> it's been really, really fulfilling for me. And uh, this past weekend, I've been spending time with my nine-year-old who's been fascinated with this app called DIY. And I, I'm hmm. assuming you do not know about it because it is a very niche niche app. But um, DIY allows, I think their mission is like allowing kids to build skills, you know, while still while still allowing them to be connected with this larger, growing, amazing maker community. You know, this this mm-hmm. crafting and maker community that they have. Uh, and, you know, the app taught my kid by watching videos, you know, and, and connecting her with her community. It taught her this weekend how to beatbox and also how to create a little fire, a controlled fire out of dryer lint. And then today she wanted to learn how to code. It was like this fascinating thing to see and to actually watch her do where she could watch videos, she could try out the skills, and then she could help be a positive support system for other people in the community that she hasn't met yet, you know face-to-face, but she feels that she has a connection with. And for me, it looked a little bit like, you know, a digital version of girl or boy scouts, you know, Mm -hmm. for for a young generation. And it that's, I think that's what I love. I generally love where it's like technology is used to actually get people offline, (laughs) you know, for them to be analog. Mm -hmm. And so they can be happier and, you know, they can feel more connected. And that's what I saw this app do. And I mean, what parent does, love, you know, what parent doesn't love that? And I, a lot of people ask me, do you let your child use technology? I said, yeah, I mean, I definitely do. If I feel that, you know, allows her to be connected, if it feels that it can help build her skills or motivate or inspire her to do something offline, I think it's a great tool. Um, and it definitely helps because I'm such a nerd. It definitely helps that this particular app, you know, was founded by Zach Fine, who is the co-founder of Vimeo. Mm-hmm. So it's a very well thought experience. <laughs> you know, I have deep appreciation for that. And it's a well designed one too. It's just like, and so in general, as a parent, and then as a designer, I, I definitely have my hats off to them right now. Oh, that's pretty cool. It is cool. Has, has your daughter been to um, a maker fair? Yeah, she has. Yeah, oh, it's funny. Cool. We, we, it was, and it was. I don't know how it is on the East Coast, but on the on the West Coast, it, was, it it's amazing how many people it actually attracts. But then, when anybody's actually in those fairs, 
everybody's engaged. The level of engagement, it's the electricity, it's contagious and it's positive. And I was, I was telling myself, I was like, I want to come to this every single day. It was very <laughs> exciting for me personally, you know, it was like, and then for my two girls as well, it felt good. That's awesome. That's yeah. great. Um, switching back over to, to your, you know, yeah. your design community, what do you think um, is the next big challenge for design as a discipline? Oh. I, I mean, I think you've probably heard it. I feel that design equals challenge, right? And that, <laughs> that, that is it for me. And that's what I love about it. I'm, I'm definitely that type of person. Um, but one of the things I've definitely been thinking a lot about you know, and throughout the years, I don't know if it's the next big one, but it's a constant challenge is, and it's a worry for me. And worry is, a, is a okay, but how do we continue to keep up with customers' expectations around personalization and customization? I'm, I feel that's the question I ask myself pretty constantly. And I think I'm dating myself right now. I know I am. <laughs> but, uh, but I remember when Amazon came out and um, Amazon.com and it remembered and pre-populated my shipping address for the first time. That just like blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, wow, that is incredible. But what makes it so sad is that that delight that did not last long. You know, now I'm this privileged, you know, pompous Silicon Valley designer that gets frustrated, you know, when my car share driver doesn't know exactly what side of the corner I'm standing on. You know, it's just like, it's, isn't, don't they know it's the same corner I stood on three weeks ago? I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, clearly my expectations are not in check. And of course, I'm completely exaggerating and being sarcastic. But I don't think it's just me. Every time I sit in user testing or just watch users interact with a prototype that we have or idea or concept, their answers actually scare me because their expectation that the product is much smarter than it actually is, that worries me. I really wonder, it's like, because they have these great ideas, don't get me wrong, they're incredibly creative and they're innovative. They're like, oh, I bet it's just the prototype, but I bet, you know, this, what this, this product is going to do is tell me exactly, you know, who I am, what my blood type is, what am I going to wear? And, you know, who's the person I'm going to meet in the next 30 seconds? So I was like, no, we can't do that. You know, and I generally, I wonder, it's just like, how can we as designers continually delight that customer when their expectations of these products are rising so much quicker, you know, on personalization? Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes I don't even worry about the delight. It's just like, how, you know, it's like, put, put that aside. How can we just retain their trust, you know, right. at this particular case it is definitely something that I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, it's just like, and I feel that we need to be cognizant about it. it's like, how do we manage their expectations on how smart we really are or how smart we really are not, you know, and that, that's the main thing, you know, it's like that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about. That's interesting. That's interesting. So what do you think is the most important trait? for for great designers yeah that's a good question so we at gopro have been uh like i mentioned we're a young team we're a seasoned team but we're young in terms of how old we are as a team and we have been on a hiring tear (laughs) we really have it's like i think everybody has been but i started at gopro 18 months ago and we now and i was obviously one of the first designers and in this in this time we have 18 designers we're now 18 designers in 18 months so we've spent a lot of time recruiting and honing down on what is really important to us. 
And really, it's just like, I think it comes down to three things. One is the obvious one is like, can you do the job, right? The second one is, are you a strong cultural match? And what I mean with that, especially because a lot of people think of GoPro and culture is not, are you a dude that surfs and, you know, goes skydiving every single day? That's not, that's not what we're looking for. You know, it's just like, actually, we really strive to have a very diverse team because we really believe a diversity of experiences builds innovation and perspective. But what we're really saying when we look for a culture and match is, you know, how do they work with people? You know, do they share the same philosophy on transparency or respect or work ethic? That has to be a match. You know, it's just like, so the first one is, can they do the job? Two, are they a good, strong cultural match? And then the third thing that we look for, you know, which arguably is, I think, one of the most critical things is, are they a learner? Do they possess the fire for learning? Hmm. And the reason we look for learners is because learners are naturally curious. They ask great questions. They want to figure out the why before the what, which I think you need as a designer. Learners are also very self-aware. They know that they don't know everything. You know, mm -hmm. they actually realize they know very little, which is great. You know, they stay humble enough not to try and answer the question, but to go to the customers and say, I don't know the answer. You tell me. He's like, you tell me what you want. You tell me what the value should be. And then I think the final thing is learners are intrinsically eager, constantly improve themselves. You know, if you therefore if you hire learners, you will hire a team that will grow. They will grow, you know, just like to become more mature and they will make each other better. So I think that's my, my advice I've given to the team and the team has given back to me is just like find learners that can do the job and then are a strong cultural match. And then you got yourself a winner. Yeah, that's that's perfect. It's so true about um, the fire for learning. Right. Yeah. Because if, if they have the other two and they don't have that, um, they'll be good. But. It, it stalls out. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, I would pick a learner over somebody that can actually do all aspects of the job. Mm -hmm. Because this is like you have a lot more potential there. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. So how do you stay relevant, uh, given the extreme rate of change? I mean, every day you turn around, there's a new tool. There's something new that that the world expects you to know as a designer. Um, so how how do you stay stay up to date with all that's going on. Yeah, that's a great question. It made me actually, it makes me think, um, I don't know if I do the best job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and especially given the extreme rate of change, I don't know if many can anymore. I, or I just need a couple more hours in the day to be able to do that. I think that's what one of the things I definitely need. But you know, one of the things that has been helpful to my team, you know, is just like the idea that I have to actually stay, you know, relevant and keep pace. So I thought about this a couple of years ago. I said, well, you know, I have to make a conscious effort to understand what's the best way for me to keep up, you know, mm -hmm. and similar to everything I do, I tried a few things, uh, you know, to figure out what works for me. For example, of course, I pull different people, you know, see what they're reading, because I'm a voracious reader. And I still read, you know, on my daily commute to work. But for me, I quickly learned reading is not quite enough. You know, it's like it's it's passive. And, and when I do design, I need to be I need to get my hands dirty. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and reading also it's like it's told through the lens of, a, you know, of a designer. And so I sometimes just need to be in direct content of that. So I think the second thing I realized that I needed to do is I needed to intentionally position myself in areas and situations 
where I could actually get my hands dirty and I could organically learn, which is hard if you're at the same job, you know, every single day. It's like, how do you position yourself in those? And so what I did was I started advising at small to large startups that were completely in a different area than I was working in. And that was really, that was, that was fascinating. Somebody had given me that recommendation and to just learn and to grow. And I still do this now and I love it. It's the best way to keep your craft polished, you know, your design craft polished, but completely stretch yourself in a different way. It's like when I was working at Walmart, I did some advising for, for banking or for healthcare, which I actually had no idea about. And I learned so much in those areas. In a similar vein, you know, it's just like I continue to just push myself and try new stuff. It's, it's very similar to like, how do I get my child to eat different foods? I just <laughs> give her different foods, you know, and an actual example, you know, it's just like, which drives my husband completely bonkers is my love for ATM machines. It's so funny to start in maybe like five, five, six years ago. Uh, really what it is is that we have a bank account at Citibank and we, we love Citibank in case Citibank was listening, but we love Citibank and we have an ATM machine right here, you know, of a Citibank, but that I have never gone to that ATM machine. I always go to every other bank, you know, that exists uh, because I want to check out their interface. I want to check out how they actually set up. And my husband always reminds me this is a $2 experiment every single time I go. But it fascinates me. Like who, you know, which one takes my card or which one lets me actually have my card as soon as I insert it? Where do they ask me for my receipt? You know, it's just like how the keypad, how is it actually set up? You know, especially when I go traveling to international countries, I'm fascinated with this. It definitely gets me in trouble. I'll never, I'll never forget the day when <laughs> I was in New York and I was down in Chinatown and I was like, yeah, I'm going to try the Chinese version of this because I just want to see if I can figure it out. I don't know Chinese. And uh, I ended up, I remember getting a call from my husband being like, did you try to deposit a thousand dollars in the Chinese ATM machine in New York? And I was like, oh yeah, so that was a big mistake, you know, and I definitely have gone to an ATM machine where I thought that it could have a better UI and I wrote my recommendations down in the deposit envelope and I tried to stick it into the ATM. I'm I'm a little nutty like that, but generally I think what I'm trying to say is, is that I go and try different things, you know, and I go and I really look at it with the eye and the lens of a designer. How would I actually design this differently? And that has been, you know, it's something that I tried to strive for at the beginning, but now has become more of a natural habit and it's been super fun. That's awesome. That yeah. is hilarious and sort of a strange little fact about you. Exactly. <laughs> Very quirky. Um, and then I think the final thing, which a lot of us designers do, and I think it is now so much easier than it's before, is, you know, along with hiring these wickedly smart and talented teams, you know, that really school me every day. I, I basically hire learners that also like to teach me, <laughs> which is really great. They teach me every day and they take great joy in doing that. I also attend, you know, design meetups and conferences. There are amazing conferences that are out there that really help aggregate designers, you know, for me to learn from maybe socially, maybe through a presentation, you know, it's just like, or maybe through a hackathon. It's, it's that's how I learn, you know, and I'm actually looking forward to our upcoming one, the O'Reilly one uh, in January, which I'm thoroughly looking forward to attending and hanging out with you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for making time to talk to me today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Vanessa will be speaking at the O'Reilly Design Conference happening in San Francisco, January 19th through 22nd. 
You can find out more at O'Reilly.com forward slash design con. You can reach Vanessa through her Twitter handle at VCho22. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn, so you never miss an episode.